0: Well, we come this morning to what is theologically, probably in any way, the most difficult passage in the Sermon on the Mount, at least to my way of looking at the sermon. Um, This is universally recognized as a sort of dense and challenging text. I must say that for all the joy I've had on preaching on the sermon, I've had a certain dread about taking this particular passage on. The words that Jesus uses here, are really are shocking words. And, and not to mention puzzling words. Um, and there's a lot at stake here, right? What's at stake is the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between the Gospel and the law. What's at stake is the form or the shape of Christian obedience. What's at stake is whether one wants to be called least in the kingdom of heaven or great in the kingdom of heaven. In fact, beyond that, what's at stake is whether one will even enter The kingdom of heaven at all. So, by way of introduction, again, it's important to see how this passage is functioning in the flow of the Sermon on the Mount. What it is really is like a heading, it's like a big banner. Jesus had the Beatitudes, then he had a short short passage on salt and light, then he gets to this, right? So what, what this is, is a heading over the central teaching part of the sermon. He's about to get into the, the teaching meat of the sermon. And right after this text, there are six short passages. They go all the way to the end of chapter 5. The six little passages that come after this are known as the antitheses. Meaning, they are six illustrations which show the contrast. Antitheses, contrast, right. They show the contrast between the way the scribes and the Pharisees were handling the law and what Jesus requires. So each of these six bits of teaching, which are about to come in the sermon, right, they have the same form. I'm sure some of you know it, right? It's, it's, you have heard it said, but I say to you. That's the antithesis. That's the, the contrast. You have heard this about such and such a commandment, but... I say to you, and then we get Jesus' pronouncement. And there are six such teachings. So in one sense, it's hard to tell fully just exactly what Jesus means in our passage until we've seen it work out in the six examples that follow. Right? So make sure you come the next six weeks. <laughs> if you don't understand today's sermon... Um, Nevertheless, this text is the principle, it's the standard that Jesus is going to uphold and apply as he continues to teach the ethic of the kingdom of heaven. So with that, we'll take a look at this under the two headings that are in your bulletin, Christ and the Law and Christians in the Law. and the Law. So first, Christ and the Law. Verse 17. Do not think... Even this opening, right, indicates that Jesus is either correcting misunderstandings or he's trying to head them off at the pass. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. To abolish would mean to set aside or to nullify, right, or to make the law somehow irrelevant or invalid. To do away with it. And right here, right at the outset, you know, a pretty sensitive reader of the New Testament is going to see some difficulties. I mean, doesn't the rest of the New Testament say that some of the law is indeed abrogated or set aside? I mean, doesn't Jesus himself set aside the food laws? Doesn't Paul say the law of commandments separating Jews and Gentiles has been abolished in the body of Christ? Doesn't the whole book of Hebrews set aside the sacrificial system and the Levitical priesthood? What is Jesus talking about? And it won't do, by the way, to say, well, he's just talking about the ceremonial law and the sacrifices and the like. Right? He's not talking about those things. He's just talking about the, what we call the moral law, the Ten Commandments. That won't work. Because notice notice what Jesus says. He has not come to abolish the law. This is a little phrase that often gets overlooked. Or the prophets. Not merely the law. The law and the prophets. And this phrase, law and the prophets, this is shorthand for the whole Old Testament. Sometimes the New Testament writers will speak of the law, and you can tell they're quoting from the Psalms or something. So the word law can mean the the whole Old Testament scripture. But law and prophets almost always means that clearly. It means the whole Old Testament canon. Right. So Jesus is talking about the whole Old Testament here. He has not come to abolish it but to fulfill it. And the second reason we know he's not talking about some subset of the law is that the text is upholding. Right? He's upholding the abiding validity of the very least, right? the very smallest stroke of a commandment. It would be easier for us if we could just carve off some subsection and say, well, he he hasn't come to abolish that, but he's come to abolish this. But he won't let us do that. The whole law, all of it, is in view. He does not come to abolish, he says, but to fulfill. Now, again, notice the contrast is not between abolishing the law and keeping it unchanged. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I have not come to abolish, I've come to keep the law unchanged. He says the contrast is between abolishing the law and fulfilling the law. And so this fulfilling is the key to what's happening here, to what's going on in the text. And the key to understanding that is noting that there are a bunch of what are called fulfillment citations in Matthew's gospel, in this very same text. So what I mean by that is Matthew is often saying something like this. This was done in order to fulfill what was written in the prophet. And that word for fulfill is the same word Jesus uses. Right? This was done in order to fulfill the scripture. Or think of Jesus at his baptism. Right? John is scandalized about the baptism and Jesus says to him, Permit it for now to fulfill all righteousness. So this helps us clarify. What does he mean by fulfill? He means bring to completion. Bring to its goal. Bring to its end. He brings the law to its purposed consummation. It's as if Jesus were saying something like, in my appearance, in my life, in my teaching, in my death and resurrection, the law and the prophets the whole Old Testament canon comes to its full and final expression. Right In Luke's gospel, he says, the law and the prophets prophesied until John. Since then, the kingdom of heaven is proclaimed. So our Lord is saying, I am the bringer of the kingdom. I am the consummator of the law. Now, We might say that in Christ the lost transfigured. It's brought to its final glory, its maturity. It's an audacious statement. And this fulfillment in Christ is why Jesus can make his own words, his own speech, the final word. When he says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, here's what he says when he's all done teaching. All through chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. He gets to the end of chapter 7 and he says this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man. Right? Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice is like a foolish man. So, I want you to step back and imagine yourself as a first century Jew for whom the Torah is life itself. It is, in a real sense, the world, right? The Torah was viewed as more valuable, more precious, more enduring than the universe itself. It's the eternal word of God. After all, it's Jesus, a good first century Jewish rabbi, who said, It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for the least stroke of the law to pass away. And now you can imagine, then, just how astonishing a claim this is. I mean, it is is blasphemous and absurd for any man or any mere man to speak like this. To say, in effect, what our Lord is saying, I have sovereign authority over the law. The issue, in other words, he's saying is, it's not my relationship to the law that you have to worry about. It's the law's relationship to me. That's at issue here. For Moses speaks of me. For I am the content and the substance and the glory and the splendor revealed in the Old Testament text. I am the subject of the law. I am the content of the law. And my life, my words, my teaching, will now that the end is set in motion, they will determine how the law functions. You would, every one of us would throw this guy out of the room. And toward the end of the sermon, Jesus will again evoke the law and the prophets. And this helps us see what he's getting at. You know what he says when he evokes the law and the prophets once more at the end? He says this. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. That, in a nutshell, is what Jesus is saying and doing here. He can summarize this with the golden rule, but it's no less revolutionary for its simplicity He comes not to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, it's right here that we might think, well, this is tremendous news for us. It kind of lets us off the hook. We're probably going to get an easier, more user-friendly version of the law. (laughs) A sort of Jesus fulfilled the law, so we don't have to. Some of you are probably already thinking this sermon is going to be about justification by faith alone. I'm sorry to disappoint you. It's not going to be. Jesus will solemnly disabuse us of anything like this in verse 18. And it's solemn because he opens with Amen. He is the Amen of God. Amen, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen, will by any means disappear. The smallest letter in Greek is a yoda. A yoda. It corresponds to the smallest Hebrew letter, which is yod. Yod's a tiny little letter. Not the smallest letter, Jesus says, or the smallest stroke. So in Hebrew manuscripts, the stroke here probably means there's little extensions in Hebrew which differentiate one letter from another letter. If you've ever tried to learn the Hebrew alphabet, it's really annoying. Right? You have to look a couple of times and say, oh, right, that's, that's this letter and not that letter. And they're differentiated by little extensions. Right? So he's probably referring to that. And so in any event, the duration of the law's authority, all the law, the tiniest letters, the tiniest extensions, not the smallest part of the law will disappear until heaven and earth disappear, until everything is accomplished, until everything that the law points to in Christ comes to pass. Now, of course, we have to understand this in light of all we've said so far about fulfillment. It is the commands, all of them, but here's the key, right? As understood in Christ. Right? As understood in the word and work of Christ that are in view. So here the text says this, Until heaven and earth disappear, not one stroke of the law shall disappear. But note what Jesus can do. He can just as easily shift the focus to his own words, which he does later in this gospel where he says this, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. That's a blasphemous offense right there. Heaven and earth will pass away. And then you expect him to say, and the Torah won't pass away. But he says, my words will never pass away. This text, this is just an aside, beloved, but this text is ferociously strong proof for the the acclaim of divinity from Jesus Christ. No one but God himself can say the words in these texts. So that's Christ and the law. As I said, I know this is not going to answer a lot of questions, but in all seriousness, we need the next six weeks to kind of see how Jesus fleshes it out. But we do start to get the implications of it for us right here. What does it mean for us? Well, beginning in verse 19, Therefore, right, therefore, Anyone who sets aside, sets aside is a word play on abolish. Right? I didn't come to abolish, you shouldn't abolish either. Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others. It's a very important text for teachers. Part of my dread is, you know, I have an office to teach, right? But it, it's not just in your private life, it's what you teach other people about the law. Anyone who does this sets aside one of the least of the commandments and teaches, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever practices and teaches will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So at the very least, we have to say this. Yes, I've made some qualifications, but following Jesus means following the Torah with the appropriate qualifiers. So, Christian life, the Christian sanctification, is guided... It is nourished. Indeed, it is obligated to keep the law. This should be pretty familiar if you're in the Reformed tradition, but it might still sound new to some. We are obligated to keep the law. Now, here's the key point. Not as a covenant of works. Right? Not for our justification. Not for our standing before God. Right? Not to avoid the curse of God on us. That's what the gospel is for. We keep the law of God, as part of our grateful duty to God, our Redeemer. Which is why after the assurance of sin, I mean the assurance of sin, excuse me, the the confession of sin and the assurance of pardon, we then confess our duty to keep the commandments as those who've been acquitted, as those who've been justified. Jesus makes it clear here that our greatness in the kingdom comes from keeping and teaching his commandments. So obedience to the law, the full Christ-shaped form of the law, what Paul can call the law of Christ, obedience to the law is not optional. It is what justified people do. And they do it comprehensively. So there's two sort of pitfalls to avoid here for us. One is what's called anti, that means against, nomians law. anti nomians against the law. We are not antinomians who just dispense with the law. Nor are we legalists, the other extreme, which thinks somehow we're saved by law-keeping, that our standing with God is tied to our law-keeping. We are neither one of those things. We are Christians. We are disciples of Jesus who says that we will not be saved without law-keeping. There is something of a high wire here. There's no doubt about it. And Jesus is out on it. And there's lots of ways to fall down. As I've said before, Chesterton has this great quote, right there are an infinity there are an infinity of angles at which one can fall. And there's only one at which one stands. And when it comes to the law and the Christian, there are lots of ways to get this wrong. And then, as if there's not enough challenging stuff here, Jesus says this, "For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, now this would have caused gasps from the hearers. For these these teachers of the law, they were the law keepers. If anyone paid attention to the jots and the tittles and the strokes of the Torah, if anyone sought obedience to all 613 commandments, it is them. They would heartily agree. Orthodox Jews love this passage in Jesus. They would heartily agree with it. One Orthodox Jewish rabbi says of Jesus' words here, here's what he says, quote, in all of rabbinic literature, forget Christian literature, in all of rabbinic literature, I know of no more unequivocal, fiery acknowledgement of Israel's holy scripture. The rabbis love this text. Nobody gets into heaven without completely obeying every jot and tittle of the Torah. Period. Jesus says it in two different ways. So I can tell you, Jesus is not saying, he's not trying to play a game here. He's not saying the Pharisees were bad. He's holding them up as a pretty reasonable example of people who are trying to keep Torah. But he's saying that their approach to the law for all of its rigor is not going to be good enough for the disciples. Simple law-keeping, even if you keep all 600 rules, will not do. You have to surpass them. And the word for surpass is greatly surpass. Like when it comes to Torah-keeping, you're going to have to make the Pharisees look like they're pretending. And the six antitheses which follow will help us see what Jesus means when he says your righteousness has to exceed theirs. Again, now, just as an aside, Jesus is not playing some sort of game here to drive us to despair so that we we turn to Christ in faith and we say Christ alone is our righteousness. The law does do that, and it's a legitimate function of the law, but it's not the function in this context. Jesus is talking about how we live. When he says your righteousness here, he means your personal conformity to God's will, your behavior. That's what's in due. It turns out, Jesus thinks, and we know this from the next six weeks, right? He thinks that our righteousness, our actual doing of justice in the earth, needs to be deeper, more internal, wider from the depth of the heart. It has to be more extensive. It has to go to every person, to all the poor, to the least of these, even to our enemies, right? It It is the righteousness that is more costly It is the righteousness of the life of the Beatitudes fleshed out in human existence. This is what he means by saying, I'm bringing a righteousness which greatly surpasses mere law-keeping. Right? And this righteousness, he says, must be manifested in us if we are to enter the kingdom of heaven. So that leaves us with a question, how? (laughs) Like, how is this even possible? Well, this is why, and we heard it in the Old Testament lesson, this is why as the fulfiller of the law, the bringer of the new covenant, the giver of the spirit, Jesus gives us new hearts, and he writes the law into our inner person. What is required for this ethic? Resurrection from the dead. Right? A new heart. The transforming power of the Spirit. A new covenant. This is the covenant I will establish, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. And I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. They broke the law, the Sinai covenant. But I'm going to take the law and interiorize it. Make make the law become part of your DNA. So that you do it instinctively. And so that you do it in the full depth and breadth of its meaning. In this way, you're going to greatly surpass the scribes and Pharisees in righteousness, lived righteousness. So it's out of this renewal of the Spirit. There is no Christian life, beloved, without the sovereign, supernatural, resurrection power of the Spirit of God. There's just some civil thing going on that we call Christianity. Out of this gift of the Spirit, this radical obedience flows. Now... This is a stark way of putting it, to be sure it's challenging. But it is said by, by the apostles throughout the New Testament. We heard of the New Testament lesson, 1 John 2. We have come to know, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. You get this all through 1 John. 1 John 3, the one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. This is love, that we keep God's commands, 1 John 5. And his commandments are not burdensome. This yoke is easy and light in the realm of the Spirit. So in short, to love is to keep the law. To keep the law is to love. This is what is meant when Jesus says, we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. Yes, you can reduce the law to two commandments, right? But they are the two most exacting commandments that have ever been uttered. They summarize everything. So this is how our Lord begins the middle section of the sermon. And at the end of this middle section, not at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, but there's a middle section of teaching that everyone recognizes in the sermon. At the end of it, at the end of chapter 5, in verse 48, he will say words equally shocking, which hearken back to this word. And those closing words, they are a summary of the Christian life. They're not going to be relaxed or, or waved away for us or for any of the followers of Christ. Here they are. Here's how Jesus brackets his sermon. He opens it with the teaching portion of his sermon. He opens it with this, what we heard today. Here's how he closes it. You, therefore, must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's a pretty high bar. In other words, he's saying, you must reflect the Sermon on the Mount, the ethic I'm teaching you, even as that ethic reflects your Father, who's in heaven. This is the calling of Christian existence in the world. Thanks be to God for the gift of the law and the prophets, and for Christ the fulfillment, who enables this perfection in us, that we might reflect the Father in the world, This obedience, which he seeks to have wrought in all true disciples. This is the way to greatness in the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Amen.